This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. You can do anything you set your mind to. If there's a door, open it. We feature women who are breaking barriers and shaping the future of foreign policy, national security, international business, and development. I'm Beverly Kirk, the director of the Smart Women, Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington. Dr. Barbara Berger is president of Chevron Technology Ventures, or CTV. It's the division of the company that invests in emerging technologies and businesses working on innovative business solutions. Think of it as an in-house venture capital operation that looks for strategic investments for the company. My name is Melissa Dalton, and I am a senior fellow and deputy director in the International Security Program here at CSIS. I'm filling in for Beverly Kirk as host of this episode of Smart Woman, Smart Power. I spoke with Dr. Berger about how CTV works and the impact it's having. We also discussed the importance of STEM education, since Dr. Berger has a doctorate in chemistry from the California Institute of Technology. Dr. Berger, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. We'd love to, to start with your thoughts on um, how Chevron Technology Ventures begin. Glad to be here and tell you a little bit about our story. Chevron Technology Ventures has been in existence for 20 years. We just had our 20th birthday earlier this year. And it was really established by some pretty forward-thinking people in the company that realized that all innovation doesn't happen inside our company. And we could learn some things by really having eyes to the outside. And, you know, we're the longest-running energy venture capital, our corporate venture capital organization. And over those 20 years, many others have started them. And, you know, we have invested in countless companies. We currently have over 40 companies in our portfolio that run the gamut from core oil and gas hardware to digital to something we call future, Hmm. which is around decarbonizing the energy uh, system. As I understand it, there's also uh, a future energy fund that's associated with, with the initiative. Could you unpack that for us a bit? Sure. We have an investment part of the mm-hmm. of Chevron Technology Ventures, and we invest in, in startups that are developing solutions to problem sets that we see in the energy industry today and tomorrow. And we launch funds, which is a vehicle that most venture capitalists use. And a a normal venture capitalist will go out and raise funds from a variety of different investors, and then they will put that money to work. And so we use that fund uh, language, even though we only raise money from one entity, which is Chevron. So our work is done once they say yes. <laughs> and But we use it to define kind of the scope of the investments we want to make in that area. And then, then we go out and do the work. So last year, uh, we launched the Future Energy Fund, and it was our sixth fund. And we said it was an initial $100 million. And the remit was lowering the emissions of oil and gas and investing in breakthrough technology and lower carbon value chains. To be honest, that's a really wide aperture. Hmm. And most most venture capitalists playing in the innovation space really want a wide aperture. Um, We have a set of problems that we're looking for solutions for, um, but we're dependent on the innovators to come forward. And not only to bring technology that is of interest to us and we can see if it works, 
how it will address the problems we have. But there's a, a management team, there's a set of investors, there's a lot of things that have to be in place for us to then say, actually, we want, we want in and um, become an investor. That's great. And could you reflect on some of the most successful ventures um, that you all have had with the fund? Well, we started the fund last year. So we've made seven investments and we, I think six of them are public. So um, I'll tell you just kind of a wide range of them just to get a sense of what we're thinking about with future. Because you do know future is from this point forward. So it's pretty, pretty broad aperture. So we invested in a direct air capture company called Carbon Engineering, which is based in British Columbia. Um, And they are working to take probably the hardest part of the decarbonization from the standpoint of CO2 concentration in the air is the most dilute, capturing it and then uh, converting it into product. So that's a that's a company that's um, looking at a, at a number of different technologies that stack together to do that work. We also invested in a company called uh, ChargePoint, uh, which probably is is known to you, and charging infrastructure. And we wanted to know how does money get made in that uh, charging value chain, if you will. Uh, where do people charge their vehicles? Um, it's an ever-evolving space. And is charging a barrier and a roadblock, or is the capacity and the infrastructure around charging basically keeping up with electric vehicle demand? So ChargePoint gave us an opportunity to understand that, as well as in parallel, our downstream businesses are looking at. So the traveling public, when they want to charge, do they come to a service station? And we're trialing that out. That's so those are two examples. There are many more. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I'm, you know, understand it's it's early on, so it'll be fascinating to see um, how how these investments um, materialize going forward. So thank you for unpacking some of those those early findings. Shifting gears a bit, would love to to hear about your experience as a woman uh, working in in the STEM field. How how you got your start? Okay, and I was at a STEM event here in Washington, D.C. with some eighth grade girls. And it was really fun to think about what it was like to be, you know, 12 or 13 years old. So I was good in math and science growing up, which I didn't even know that was STEM because I don't think STEM was (laughs) available in those days. But I I was good at that. But I was also good at history and English and so forth. And I was good at sports and music. So pretty broad understanding. I went to college and I thought I wanted to be a doctor. And my aunt was a doctor, and she went to medical school in the 50s. Now, she was a pioneer. Wow. And I got into, you know, into the chemistry major. And I, I don't know, somehow evolved over during that time that research and science was more interesting to me than medicine. She, I think she's forgiven me. <laughs> um, I had good classes, good laboratory experience, and continued to pursue my work in science while, while minoring in history, because I've always liked the history part. Uh, there weren't very many women. There weren't very many women as an undergraduate at University of Rochester, and there sure weren't very many at Caltech. I would say, though, that one thing was when there are not very many of you, you form very strong bonds with the ones that were there. So I had, in particular, three other women. There were more, but three other women at Caltech in the chemistry department while I was there, all different grades, if you will. And we have remained friends since then. That was a long time ago. Um, So you learn to stick together. Yep. 
And you also learn how to deal with the other gender. Um, <laughs> and uh, I think having that I have brothers and stuff, you know, I've learned how to work with men and women. But you didn't have a lot of role models. And um, I guess that has shaped me in both how I've performed as an individual, but also how I think about um, the role I play with uh, girls and women coming behind me. Yeah. And it, what advice would you have for that rising generation? First of all, you can do anything you set your mind to. If there's a door, open it. You know, in my day and probably in my mother's day and certainly in my aunt's day, there were certain jobs that were pink jobs. There still are a little, is a little bit of that. And if you think about the role that I have right now, you know, after I got a PhD from Caltech, I went and got an MBA in finance from Berkeley. I am in the intersection of energy and tech and finance, and there's <laughs> not very many of us there. Um, you know, pursue uh, work that, you know, really intersects with your passion where there are opportunities and where you have the capabilities. And the fact that you're a girl, all those options should be open to you. Um, find role models. Find role models that are either that are both men and women. Yep. I found the men in the early days that had daughters were some of my best allies. Allies are really important. Um, I, I try to play a role um, as an ally for, for many groups within Chevron. Because if you look up and you don't see anybody that looks like you or thinks like you, it can be pretty lonely. Absolutely. And that is great perspective and advice. Thank you. I would love to also talk about your work outside of CTV. I know you've been engaged with education, um, various other pursuits. Would would love to hear from you on that. So I'll tell you a little bit of my story there. So so I am very well educated. I have my family first to thank for that. Um, I had role models. My grandmother got her master's degree in the 20s. I had no wow. idea when I was growing up how unusual yes, that was absolutely. because that was my grandmother. And then my aunt going to medical school in the 50s, again, that was, you know, that was my aunt. So I didn't know how unusual that was. So my family set an expectation for education, uh, put myself through school, and uh, it was an ultimate door opener. You know, Rochester got me into Caltech, Caltech got me into Chevron, and I was on my way. Many people helped me, and I know who some of them were, and I don't know who all of them are, right? Because I, uh, as I said, I put myself through school, but I took every scholarship and grant I could get. So as I turn around and I look at how that was able to accelerate my journey and allow me to do all the things I could do, how can I open up the door for others? So I created two scholarships. One at my university where all the kids, and I call them kids because I meet them when they're 18 years old, all of them came to the same university from lots of different places and lots of different backgrounds. And I also created a scholarship at my late husband's high school. So I was a widow at 44. I'm and sorry. if you want to get a knock on the head and say, okay, what do you want to do in life? That would do it to you. Yeah. Um, but I created a scholarship at his high school. So all the kids come from the same place, but they go lots of different places. And of course, that was my connection back to him. And it was my connection to rural California, which was where he was from. I was not. So with these two scholarships, I have eight kids at any one time. <laughs> so I do not have children of my own, but I say I have more kids than anybody. Um, Absolutely. And so I have eight of them, two in each grade, and they major in all kinds of different things. And 
I learn so much from them and they learn from each other, which I'm really excited that the seniors understand that they can help the first years and so forth. And it turns out once they graduate, they don't shake me off. And so I've got some in their late 20s. And it it has taught me a lot about rural America. It has taught me a lot about, I'm a trustee at the university, so I learn a lot from the students, which helps me be a better trustee. So I think I get as much out of it as the kids do. And I'm just really, really pleased that I, I had the faculties to do that. And that both the high school in the case of Northern California and the university partnered with me to be able to make that happen. That sounds incredibly rewarding. And I understand um, also you have an initiative called iZone, a, mm. a center where students can go to brainstorm and communicate ideas for social, cultural, and community impact. Thank you for bringing it up. <laughs> So a couple of intersections here. One is on learning as opposed to education, right? Education is something you access. Learning is something you do. Right. And how does how has learning changed over time? So there's an element to that. And there's an intersection here with libraries. And That's libraries, great. so first of all, I had an uncle, the aunt that went to med school, her husband, worked in the library. So nice. I so I probably the first thing I ever saw in a university was a library. Libraries from the dawn of time have been a place where learned people, learned, not educated necessarily, but learned people went to exchange ideas. And then Gutenberg kind of spoiled it a little bit because he invented <laughs> the printing press and libraries, Proliferation. Be- yeah. <laughs> libraries became known as these repositories and, you know, they had physical structures, stacks to, you know, put books in. And now we're having this whole raging dialogue about the role of a book versus digital versus, right. you know. So libraries have gone back to or maybe just reinforced their original purpose, which is where do people from all walks of life and all majors, if you're on a university campus, come together? Right. And it's a library. So there's a very visionary dean at the library where I went as an undergraduate that was really exploring the role of libraries in the 21st century. And that just resonated with me in all kinds. And one aspect was, could we create a physical space and a set of programs in a community by which ideas would get out of people's heads and could be progressed? Mm -hmm. Because ideation is a team sport. There's very few people that can take an idea from their head to fruition all by themselves. Right. But how do you collaborate to progress that idea? It takes a physical space where people can come together and feel included. It takes a set of programs so that you have design thinking, so you have different people that can collaborate on an idea so that you don't brainstorm and immediately discount ideas. I've realized how many brainstorming sessions <laughs> I've been in where we really not didn't do it right, right, to then forming a team and progressing the opportunity. So uh, when they came up with this idea, how could I not want to be part of it? And I tell some of my other trustees, could have been your name, but it wasn't. So I seized the opportunity to put my name on it, um, obviously to contribute financially, but more importantly, to help shape what it looked like and then also what I would take out of it. Mm -hmm. And this whole notion of collaboration to progress ideas is how the big problems of the world are going to be solved. And I'm still that 18-year-old that wants to change the world. Well, that's fantastic. Hopefully, you're also inspiring others to to have that that ambition. I hope so. Yeah. And I understand you're also engaged with the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. So back to the role I play in Chevron. Yep. 
if part of our remit is to access external innovation and connect the dots between all the other elements of the ecosystem really focused on innovation, then being connected with the national labs, with universities, with startup development organizations, those are all pieces of the puzzle. And in my organization, each one of us, in addition to progressing individual opportunities, we also need to be the person on point which doesn't mean to be a bottleneck, but you're there and you're sort of that gateway back into Chevron and for Chevron to that organization. So there's a few that I've picked. The National Renewable Energy Lab is one of them. MIT is another one where thinking about what that organization or that advisory board or whatever venue uh, you're involved with, where Chevron can benefit and people from Chevron could benefit from knowing Uh, new ideas coming out of that and vice versa. They've really shaped my views on things in a good way, you know, (laughs) filled out, you know, what's the total picture of energy, not just what my company would do or what my sector within the industry would do, and uh, where the solutions for the challenges going forward are going to come from. That's fantastic. And I understand you're also engaged with the MIT Energy Initiative Governing Board? So similar to NREL, probably MIT was the first university to create an energy institute or energy initiative. Most of the big universities have created something similar Mm -hmm. because energy is a big, cross-functional, interdisciplinary, collaborative area where there's a great intersection with technology. So MIT was one of the first And, you know, I think MIT is very practical, interdisciplinary, and understands that we need both the incumbent industry, new industry, all to work together. I've learned a lot from MIT on that. I didn't go to MIT. I went to the other Tecker school on the (laughs) other coast, so it's a little ironic that I've been involved with MIT. I have high regard for the faculty there, the administration. And with their reputation, they're able to create a governing board where every day I learn something from the other parties around it. And hopefully they can say the same about me. Yeah. Well, and, you know, it's it's really remarkable to look across all of the ways that you're engaged, the cross-disciplinary investment, not just in a fiscal, you know, sense, but investing in the next generation, investing in different sectors and really tying it all together. And no doubt, you know, your contributions to the governing board, to advisory councils are, are enriched by what you're doing at, at community levels and, and vice versa. So it's really incredible to hear about how you're tying that together in different aspects of, of your life. So thank you for sharing that with us, Barbara. Well, thank you and I appreciated the opportunity to talk this morning. Absolutely. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to good content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women and I'm at Beverly Kirk. Thanks for listening. See you next time.